You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. Hi, guys. This is Brian Lenny of Mining Stock Education and Junior Stock of Your Premium. Uh, today with me, I have Matt Fernley of Battery Materials Review. Matt, welcome to the show. Uh, because you're new, I think it's best if we start with an intro to yourself and to your newsletter. Cool. Well, thanks very much, uh, Brian. Thanks for the invite. I'm uh, really pleased to be here and uh, looking forward to uh, seeing what we uh, what we end up talking about. But uh, yeah, my background, I'm a, I'm a geochemist. Uh, I've been a, a sell-side analyst and a buy-side analyst for 15, 20 years, 20 years. Probably don't want to admit that, but uh, uh, doing various things. And um, around about 2017, I got very in- interested in the EV story and the battery story, uh, did a deep dive analysis on that and decided that there was going to be a huge, huge event there um, and that there's probably going to be a shortage of battery raw materials. So I set up my business battery materials review then. And I've uh, been doing it uh, for five or six years now. Um, it's, it's good fun. It's sort of, um, and I think our, our subscribers find it useful as well. So it's a uh, a monthly subscription periodical focusing on on not just the materials themselves, but also the downstream because I think it's really important that people understand what the drivers are, and that helps to be able to pick the um, the cycles in the in the materials as well. So we, we talk about the upstream and the downstream. We focus on the exploration side, the development side uh, of all the different sort of key battery materials and, and going into the sort of cathode and the anode stuff. So uh, it's fascinating. It always keeps me on my feet. There's always new sort of questions to ask and thematics to look at. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very good. And most of our stuff is subscription, but I do uh, a fair amount of sort of blogs on LinkedIn and, and, and various other things. And we've actually got a, um, our 2022 yearbook just came out, uh, and it's on our site available for free at batterymaterialsreview.com. So I've got the ubiquitous adverse out the way. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try and answer your questions now. Yeah. Well, that's excellent. Um, so I think when most people talk, or think about batteries or especially battery demand, the focus goes to EVs. But I wanted to stay kind of high level or start high level. And could you first break down to us how the battery demand market actually works by segment of demand? Uh, yes, I mean, I, I think if you were looking at this sector sort of six or seven years ago, um, rechargeable battery demand was dominated by consumer batteries. So stuff like sort of iPod and um, cell phone batteries, that was really the, the driver of, uh, of demand. And then sort of, uh, I guess, probably around about sort of 2018, 2019, uh, the EV story started coming to the fore in a big way. And that's dominating demand now and will continue to dominate demand for the next 10, 15, 20 odd years. Um, but we also have another high growth segment coming through, and that's the um, stationary energy storage segment. So those are the sort of batteries that sit alongside renewable plants, um, sit alongside um, residential solar and commercial solar and things like that. And that's a really very high growth area. Now, it's not going to rival EVs anytime soon or probably in fact ever um, but it is going to go past consumer batteries quite rapidly um, and from from the point of view of me as a geochemist and, and us sort of specializing in the industry it's really interesting because some of the chemistry is exposed to it use very different materials to what you get in your bog standard lithium ion batteries so stuff like vanadium and chromium and iron and, and other stuff like that that's really interesting 
Excellent. Okay. So let's start with the EV batteries and you kind of alluded to it. There's a, a number of different chemistries. So could you break down for us how the chem, the different chemistries work in terms of demand and sort of the, the high level with the percentage? Yeah. Like that I, I'm going to use you as my guinea pig. If your eyes <laughs> start getting glazed, I'll stop and uh, we can go <laughs> to the next question. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's very much a, a, a sort of story of over time. Um, in the old days when electric vehicles first broke out, um, the sort of chemistry was uh, what we call lithium cobalt oxide, which is now the, the core chemistry for consumer batteries, very cobalt rich. And of course, then the big cobalt squeeze came and people started thinking, well, we've got to start looking at other sort of formulations. And one of the formulations they looked at was uh, lithium iron phosphate, LFP. And they kind of rejected that because it hasn't got very high energy density. Um, so they then moved on to ternary batteries, which at the time were nickel cobalt manganese batteries, about a third, a third, a third. And uh, as um, uh, sort of technology moved forward, um, they started looking at, at higher nickel and lower cobalt because cobalt was very expensive. So the idea was to sort of engineer out the cobalt to, to any great degree. And in fact, Tesla, who, as we all know, were some of the leaders, they used a type of ternary battery, which didn't really use manganese to the same extent, which we call an NCA battery, nickel, cobalt, aluminium. Um, but but that's still a, a quite a small sort of subset of ternaries. So now the biggest battery in the world, I would say, is the NCM523. So that's uh, nickel, cobalt, manganese in 50, uh, 20, 30% increments. But the fastest growing battery within the ternary space is the NCM811, which is what we call a high nickel battery. Now, the reason that's important, and I'm sure we'll touch on that later, is you can only use a certain type of lithium chemical to make those high nickel batteries. I'm sure we come back to that later. But so that's relevant. And then round about sort of 2020, 2021, you saw the Chinese specifically uh, doing a lot of work on the um, the LFP battery chemistry and, for instance, BYD and CATL. Uh, BYD actually brought through this um, very interesting uh, technology called the Blade battery, which completely revolutionized LFP and, and made it more energy dense within a pack solution. So you now have a situation where, whereby LFP is, has been the fastest growing cell chemistry in China for the last 18, 18 months or so. And um, it's now surpassed ternary batteries. And a lot of people, uh, including myself, expect LFP to be a core chemistry in Europe, possibly not to the same extent in, in North America, because your average driving distances are larger in North America. Uh, and therefore, you need a slightly more energy dense battery. But in um, Asia and Europe, where your average driving distance may be only 20 to 30 kilometers a day, you don't need a huge battery. So you can have smaller batteries that are less energy dense and therefore cheaper. So LFP has been a, a huge growth area. It was dead and buried five years ago. Nobody was looking at LFP at all. Now it's probably 40% of, of, of batteries are on. So yeah, that's uh, that's chemistries in a nutshell. Okay, can I ask you a question? Like just going, because that's actually where I wanted to, to ask you eventually was talking about that balance between range and energy density and, and maybe even cost. Because I, I definitely see your point about average travel distances. But I wonder in this inflationary period going forward, whether cost becomes a bigger and bigger part of the equation and what where you think the market is headed because the LFP comes, as far as I know, at a, at a slightly lower cost than the NMC. 
Yeah, I, I, I mean, I totally agree with you. I mean, for me, uh, you know, if you if you listen to Elon over the last five or six years, it's always been been about range, range, range. But the problem is range, range, range means either ternary batteries, which are more expensive, or bigger batteries, which are more expensive, and also use more material in an environment where materials are very scarce. So for me, we actually now over the last six to 12 months is starting to see price elasticity in the industry in a way we haven't seen it before. And, and my feeling is that we will actually start to see pressure on manufacturers to put smaller batteries into the vehicles going forward and also, um, you know, cheaper batteries. And that's where LFP, you know, is going to really take over because a lot of people see LFP as kind of a mass market battery. I mean, if you, if you look at the sort of average battery size in China, um, it rose enormously in 2018, 2019 with the advent of the Model 3. And then it's it's absolutely collapsed in a peak. So it's gone from about 60 kilowatt hours to about 40 kilowatt hours over the, the last two years. And that's really been as, as the small EVs have, have dominated. And these small EVs sell for about ten dollars to $15,000 and have a range of probably 100, 150 miles, um, which is fine for, for the Chinese and for the Europeans because you know, it's very rare that you would drive more than 100 miles in a day. Um, but, you know, in a North American context, it's not so great. But definitely we are seeing an increasing amount of price elasticity and we're seeing pressure on uh, manufacturers now to, to start using more efficient batteries. And it's one of the reasons why um, you, you've probably seen things like the Cybertruck and, and the Tesla Semi being delayed, primarily because there was a shortage of raw materials, but also because raw material prices went so high. And, and now if you look at the battery cost of those units, it's going to be very, very high compared to the to the rest of the costs in the vehicle. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, that, that brings up another point, you know, the, the Cybertruck or the Semi, I think are really interesting topics because as you get bigger or that, you know, weight to power ratio becomes that more uh, important or applicable. Um, it seems that like, do you think that you were going to see batteries and heavy equipment? Um, like, is that something we're going to see in the future? Because I know Caterpillar has moved or they actually have a line of, you know, the hydrogen fuel cells. Um, but will we see electric vehicles or electric, you know, heavy equipment? Well, I, I mean, I think this is a really interesting question. And I, I, without sitting on the fence, I don't really have an answer for your question, but I, I, I'll give you my view, um, which is that I think you could go up to buses um, with batteries. And if the raw material shortage um, drops off, improves over the next five or 10 years, I think you can get up to, you know, maybe vehicles to say the size of the Tesla Semi. Um, but larger vehicles than that, there isn't really the um, the, the power to weight trade off. And um, you're right that, that a lot of the um, heavy equipment manufacturers started looking at hydrogen um, fuel cells. Now, a lot of them have actually rejected hydrogen fuel cells because the efficiency doesn't work. But JCB did a big analysis on this, and they concluded actually burning hydrogen as a fuel was a, was a viable solution for them. So. I don't think you've heard the last of hydrogen, particularly in these large vehicles. Um, but, you know, certainly with the cost of raw materials at the moment in the battery space, uh, I'm not convinced that, you know, batteries work for very heavy vehicles. Um, now, obviously, there are chemistries that would work. So, you know, you talk about new battery technologies, people talk about solid state a lot, which is got a very, very high energy density. 
But the problem is people have been talking about solid state as the thing around the corner for the last sort of eight or nine years, <laughs> and it's never really arrived. So, you know, solid state could solve the problems, but when? <laughs> right, right. And so with the solid state, it is an interesting segment of the market because it was it energy density or is it also safety that's been the primary push towards having a solid state battery? It's energy density. Uh, I mean, there there is a safety issue, um, particularly for higher nickel uh, ternary batteries. But in fact, LFP batteries are very are very stable and quite safe compared to to ternary. So you know there is a safety issue, and 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 there has been um, you know there has to be a lot of focus on the purity of the uh, cathode material, the anode material, the separator, the electrolyte. Um, generally, when you have instability in cells. It comes back to impurities in the uh, chemical um, constituents of the cathode and anode uh, and, and the rest of the cell. So that's why there, there's this there's this focus on sort of purity. And it comes back to this issue of, of why it's so difficult to get new supply uh, in place. But really coming back to solid state, the focus is on energy density. The energy density is so much higher than anything else in the market at the moment. But the problem is you know, getting into commercial production on that. And also, you know, a lot of sub-state batteries, they still use lithium. So with lithium prices this high, how economic is solid state going to be is a big question. Right. Okay. So maybe this is a good opportunity to go back to that 811 chemistry and how that progression affects the market in terms of maybe lithium or whatever else uh, becomes a bigger deal in those, those that type of chemistry. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I think... Um, the, the real factor on the high nickel chemistries is they use a different type of lithium compound. So your, your LFP battery and your low nickel uh, batteries use a, a material called lithium carbonate, um, which is the primary product from, from brine operations, for instance, in Latin America. Um, and your high nickel batteries you li- use lithium hydroxide. Now, lithium hydroxide can be con- uh, made two ways. First of all, by converting lithium carbonate, but obviously then you've got the cost of buying the lithium carbonate plus the conversion cost. And then the other way is by processing spodumene concentrate material, and that goes directly to, to lithium hydroxide. So um, you, you do have this two-tier market effectively springing up. And uh, um, for, from the point of view of lithium, that makes it even more com- complex than, than it would be otherwise. So it's it's a it's a very interesting you know there's there's lots of sort of moving parts in this market that you don't necessarily sort of see from outside it right 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 well then it's interesting like you know speaking of that you know the chinese have been one of the primary buyers or consolidators of the solars in south america um so i guess it makes sense that there may be the the leading uh consumer of lfp or producer of lfp uh it makes makes a lot of sense and also i think you had the i think the big um move in the lithium market last year was um a number of hmm, investment banks cited the growth in uh, lipidolite production out of china so lipidolite is a is a um a lithium mineral that, that's found in hard rocks uh similar to spodumene which is also found in, in in hard rocks and um processing lipidolite generally goes to lithium carbonate as well so there was a lot of excitement or the inverse of excitement about the fact that China had these resources of lipidolite and they would bring them into production very quickly and therefore create a lithium market. In practice, that hasn't quite happened, but yeah. 
so there's a couple different ways I want to go with this, but before I get into the the kind of the security of supply, I wanted to ask you a question about hybrid versus plug-in. Uh, we saw the Toyota CEO talk about, you know, Toyota's way forward and how they were kind of skeptical on, you know, these fully plug-in, uh, the fully, fully plug-in market and how the hybrid offered, you know, flexibility, not only to the, uh, the manufacturer, but also to the consumer, the being the, the car consumer. So where do you see that market heading? Like, are we, are we going to have to bridge the gap with hybrids uh, in the, in the short term? Or how, how do you see that progressing to maybe to a full plug-in fleet of vehicles worldwide? Yeah. I mean, I, I actually don't rate hybrids as electric vehicles. Okay. I mean, effectively gasoline vehicles with a bit of a range <laughs> extender. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't, I mean, the, 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 uh, the legacy for the Japanese, um, OEMs is that they didn't really believe in electric vehicles and they developed these high hybrids, which are very, very complex, by the way. I mean, you've got basically got an electric drive engine and a um, gasoline drive engine. Um, so they're, they're awfully complex. You use a lot of materials and, you know, they're very, very intensive. Um, so I, I don't think it's a, the hybrid is a great solution. Now, the plug in hybrid, I think, is a very useful middle ground, if you will, between full gasoline and full battery. And uh, the plug-in hybrid ticks a lot of boxes insofar as the batteries are much smaller. They're about sort of 15 or 20 kilowatt hours versus, you know, the average battery size for a battery electric, full battery electric vehicle, which is about probably 50 to 60 kilowatt hours. And, and they would tick a lot of boxes in the current environment where uh, supplies of material constrain. The only problem is to a lot of governments, they're not politically acceptable because they still rely on gasoline. Um, so it's a real, it's a real issue for people in the industry, you know, will like the idea of the plug-in hybrid, um, because it, it bridges the gap. Um, but for politicians who perhaps don't understand the pressure on raw materials, um, they're trying to get rid of plug-in hybrids and, and make it all battery electric vehicles. Right. Well, and it's it's also kind of interesting the political spin on it, right? Because um, you know, the EVs, you know, have they don't emit carbon when they're driving, but that electricity that's produced that still comes from a natural gas plant, power plant, it's still it's right. kind of just where yes. you're putting the carbon. I know, I mean, in some parts of the world, I mean, for instance, in China, it's what eighty percent of electricity comes from coal, you know. <laughs> in uh, you know, so in Germany, for instance, where where a lot of the power comes from really dirty brown coal. Um, you know, you compare that to, to the UK where, you know, many days in the summer, all of the power comes from renewable energy. You know, it's a, it's a very different situation. So, you know, if, if you're running your EV in Quebec, for instance, and you've got 80% hydroelectric power, it's very clean. But if you're running it in certain other states where you've got 80% gas and coal, uh -uh. <laughs> yeah, there's no difference. <laughs> it's pretty much in the eye of the beholder, very much. But um, you know, the, the the view is that over time we will move to, to to cleaner energy, and therefore that EVs will be cleaner. And I think the other thing to be aware of in EV land, particularly with regards to the battery, that that a lot of people aren't aware of, is that the smelting and processing that goes into the battery is very power intensive as well. So you know, you're making things like cobalt, nickel purification, cathode manufacturing, all of that is really power intensive. So if you're doing that in China using a grid that's 80% powered by coal, it's pretty dirty. And that's one of the things that a lot of the uh, EV non-believers beat the EV space up about. But you know, you've got this starting level whereby, you know, if you if you buy an EV now or you buy an ICU, 
your IC has actually got a lower carbon footprint than your EV. It's only if you run it for like five or 10 years that the, the carbon footprint um, improves. But now, one of the reasons I'm so excited about you know developments in the sector in 2022 is with the IRA and this emergence of, of new um, clusters of battery manufacturing in Canada and in the US as well, we have the potential to significantly lower the carbon footprint of the manufacture of these vehicles. I'm sure we'll come back to North America later, but uh, I just well, want to put that one in there. <laughs> you bring up an interesting concept because it's definitely somewhere where I wanted to go with the conversation. Because I, But I think the EU is probably the best example um, for this question because I remember reading a couple of years back, the EU set out this kind of broad outline of how they wanted to have a certain carbon footprint for the additives for their batteries. And they said, you know, within this certain segment or a certain range of a battery manufacturing plant, that's where they wanted to get all their material. But I see an issue with something like lithium because as far as I know, anyways, there's not a lot of sources of lithium or maybe if any in Europe. And so you have this kind of dichotomy between the political push towards, you know, having um, your your low carbon footprint battery materials. But then you have the real um, issue with supply and, you know, with a world that's kind of diverging. This seems yeah. to be a bigger and bigger topic. Uh, I kind of liken the, the European EV industry to like building the Sistine Chapel without putting in the foundations on the building. Um, and, and that's the problem because they've got all these great, you know, um, aims with regards to the EV industry, but they have invested so little in raw materials that Europe's got a, a serious problem, a, a very serious problem. And in fact, there are a number of lithium projects in Europe that have been under development for the last five years, and they're still under development because they keep getting blocked um, by environmentalists and um you know, uh, Rio Tinto, which is one of the world's big mining companies, had a big project in, in Serbia called Jadar, where they dropped in probably five or six hundred million in um, investments. And the Serbian government turned around last year and just said, nope, not taking this forward, cancelled, bang. Um, so that there really is a, a really big um, issue in Europe with regards to getting raw material projects off the ground. And you know, there's there's something of an issue in the US as well. But this is why the IRA is so intelligent, because it acknowledges that there's a planning issue with regards to raw material projects in the US. And it says, well, fine, you can source raw materials from other countries where the US has a friendly relationship. We call it friendshoring. So that basically opens up Canada and Australia. And God forbid the UK if it ever got any primary production. Okay. Okay. So uh, the other thing I was reading about is the Critical Raw Materials Act in within the EU. And I guess that does that address the issue of permitting and maybe necessarily fast tracking some of these projects, you know, when they're discovered or when yeah. they're applying? Um, the answer to your question is not yet. Not yet. Uh, we obviously have um, uh, some clarification coming through on the European uh, approach within the next two weeks. I, I don't know how long it will take for this podcast to go up, but probably we won't have any uh, clarity before the podcast goes out. But yes, so the, the European Union is going to publish its strategy um, over the next couple of weeks. But I, I mean, I think the problem that the EU struggles with is that basically you've got to have whatever it is, 25 countries agreeing on something. And, and, and that's difficult. Uh, I mean, that's like herding cats. And, uh, you, you know, the, I, I feel upset by what's happened in the EU because they were the first area to recognise the importance of the 
battery story in electric vehicles in 2017, 2018. And between then and now, they haven't gone anywhere. And, you know, Australia, Canada, Indonesia, the US have all lapped the EU. And the other thing that, that's a real issue in the EU is this understanding of um, ESG and the relationship between ESG and primary raw materials. And, you know, when I speak to European governments, I always get this yada, yada, yada. Uh, you know, we're investing in recycling. We don't need to invest in primary production. And you sort of sit there and you go, well, can I ask you some questions? First of all, how long do you think a battery lasts in an EV? Uh, I don't really know. I think 10 to 12 years. Next thing, how many times does the industry have to grow? The supply in the industry have to grow over the next 10 to 12 years? I don't know. Oh, think about seven to eight times. So you think about, you know, what are the contribution to supply the batteries that we were using 10 to 12 years ago are going to make in 12 years? And it's, you know, there'll be like 5% of supply, providing that they all go you know, into recycling and they could go to other uses, they could go to second life uses and whatever. So realistically, you know, by 2020, 2035 or something, we may be recycling enough material to contribute two or three percent to supply. It's going to be irrelevant. So you don't invest in the primary raw material now. Recycling is not going to be enough. So that this is a, a, a real issue that we have to deal with in the markets when we talk to politicians. Because they like the cute, fluffy, you know, clean things, but they don't really like dirty industry and mining and chemicals, of course, are, are, are dirty industries. Right, right. So in your view, what are what would you say are, are maybe the top three to five materials that um, the EU specifically has to be looking at uh, to fast track to make sure the supply chain is going to work? So, so the only... Um, battery raw material that is made at any scale in the EU is nickel. Um, so there's a project in Finland, um, there's copper smelters in the Nordic region, um, and obviously there's um, there is nickel in Russia as well. Whether that material is going to be acceptable, I don't know, but for the time being, it is, um, you know, in global supply chain. So, really, the only material that they are balanced certainly not long, but balanced in is nickel. You know, cobalt, manganese, phosphate, lithium, um, they could be balanced in graphite. There's some interesting graphite projects, particularly in the Nordic region, um, and integrated graphite projects. So they might get there in graphite, but again, those are in, you know, development. I'm not going to call it development hell, but it could certainly be going a lot faster, let's put it that way. Um, but um, so they, they could have graphite and nickel, but basically lithium, cobalt, manganese, and phosphate, they got to put some effort into developing resources in those areas. Um, so let's let's move on to grid scale storage. You know this uh, stationary storage that you were talking about earlier. You know I think truly to hit the net carbon zero goal by 2050, I think this is going to have to be uh, a major part of that solution. Um, so I was wondering. I guess it's a two part question. The first one: Are batteries the best way to address the grid scale energy storage? And then secondly, um, if so, you know, what kind of commercially viable options out there today on the battery side of things? Okay, so I think um, talking about the grid scale energy storage. So um, there's different 
solutions in the market. I think um, the first thing to be aware of is that obviously we want to go more renewables. Now, um, the problem with renewables that not a lot of people are aware of is if you have more than 20% renewable power in your grid, it destabilizes your grid. So you need something to smooth off that power. So there are two applications of batteries. There's what we call short duration, so basically power smoothing and frequency modulation and everything. And there's longer duration, which is genuine storage of power over the long run. Now, um, what we see at the moment is really the only major commercial technology that's in the market is lithium-ion. Um, but lithium-ion certainly is not, in my view, the best technology for long-duration energy storage. There are better ones out there which aren't really produced on a commercial scale at the moment. And then for, for shorter uh, duration, a lot of people favor other technologies like capacitors and, and, and different things like that. But I, I, I think lithium-ion do have their place, but obviously with the higher power costs now, um, uh, higher um, costs of manufacture, in lithium-ion, it does make you know lithium-ion less competitive with potentially other technologies in the market. So um, you know that that's the issue that we're dealing with. And then you know if you look at long duration, some of the uh, technologies I mentioned earlier, uh, vanadium redox flow batteries, they've been a lot around the longest, um, and you know there's a lot of potential in that in that business. But we're still waiting kind of for that gigafactory moment in terms of economies of scale. Uh, we're just not seeing anybody really scaling up manufacturing capacity enough for that. Um, chromium flow, iron flow, um, sodium iron, uh, which is starting to take off in China. People are looking at that. Again, that's more of a shorter duration um, technology. And that could, you know, fill in for lithium iron because at the moment it's quite a lot cheaper than lithium iron. So, you know, those, those are the sort of things that, that we're looking at. And then at the moment, because there aren't very many long duration uh, technologies in the market, what people do is they double and triple up on lithium ion batteries. So if you need a duration of, say, eight hours and your lithium ion battery only has a duration of two hours, you just put in four banks of lithium ion. But of course, that's four lots of batteries. So that's going to cost you four times as much. So, you know, th this is these are the issues that we're dealing with. Um, in the space. And of course, the other problem is that, um, you know, you think about investing in a, in a battery over time, a, a renewable generation over time, um, the cost of capital is increasing. So, you know, as interest rates go up, um, it throws the economics of these, these businesses, which are 10, 15, sometimes 20 year businesses, into flux. Um, so it's a very difficult time, you know, on the stationary storage side. And then on the on the other side of the equation, where we're talking about stationary storage, maybe alongside solar um, for, for sort of backup generation in places like California, where the grid goes down every so often, and particularly in Europe, where, you know, there's there's a real concern about the ability to source gas from ex-Russia. Um, that's one of the fastest growing areas for residential storage in the world, by the way, in, in Europe and Eastern Europe. But, you know, in, in these areas, obviously, um, the cost of lithium-ion batteries is going up. But also, you know, a lot of these things are bought on credit. So obviously, if interest rates are going up, that's going to impact the ability of the consumer to, to buy these things. So, you know, there's a lot of moving parts in that space at the moment. But, you know, from the point of view of residential, um, state, I'm sorry, of, of utility scale stationary storage, um, I think there's a, there's a strong growth potential. But we've got to prove that it's viable, really.
So if if I if I understand you correctly, the the reason for you know not having as much or mass adoption on the grid scale um, or uh, utility scale uh, battery storage is because the the technology isn't necessarily at the point where uh, people are confident in it. Is that the so um, it's not you know the lithium ion is not the best technology for um, you know long duration storage. And then the other technologies, there just isn't the history. There is actually the history in uh, vanadium redox flow batteries. There's one that's been running in Japan for seven, eight, nine years, I think, now. Um, but, you know, people want, it's like with EVs, people want to be able to test these things over a long period of time and, and make sure, you know, they're not going to stop working just when my customers need their power and stuff like that. So I think that's the, the real thing. But we are starting to see, you know, a lot of money going into research, a lot of money um, being allocated to sort of push these things forward. I would say we're probably 12 to 18 months away from large scale commercialization of a lot of these non-lithium ion technologies. So we're just on the, on the cusp of that really taking off as a, as a huge you know, market. You know, there's a ton of talk on the cathode side of, of things, but there's not, a, or at least in my view, there's not a lot of talk on the anode side. And I know the anode side is dominated by the graphite. Um, but what can you tell us about the anode side? Maybe even more specifics on, on graphite and where it kind of stands, uh, you think, in the criticality uh, moving forward. Yeah, so, for, I mean, for me, uh, graphite is one of the areas where I'm most concerned, not so much on the uh, supply of natural graphite side, but on the side, uh, side of the anode materials, where I can see if it's the horrific pun, a big black hole. And there, you know, there is a complete lack of um, projects that are going to come through in time outside China in anode materials. So um, if you look over time, certainly sort of going back to 2017, 2018, the bulk of anode material and batteries was derived from synthetic graphite, artificial graphite. Um, and, and that was the most consistent product for the battery makers. Now, the problem with artificial graphite is it's um, it's generated from basically the, the oil refining industry. So the input is quite a dirty material. And on top of that, to purify it, um, you, you have two approaches. One is um, chemical purification with um, an acid called hydrofluoric acid, which is really difficult to handle and can generate big environmental impact. And the other way is with uh, thermal purification, which in the synthetic graphite industry requires you to heat it at 2000 degrees for like two weeks or something. So as you can imagine, that's quite power intensive. Um, with a, an associated carbon footprint. Um, and costs of synthetic graphite have been rising quite rapidly because of closures in oil refining, and obviously the cost of power has been increasing. So over the last four or five years, people have started looking more to natural graphite, um, and the, the, the process of, of converting natural graphite into anode material uh, basically involves making spherical graphite. Uh, and through the, the, the processes I talked about earlier, and you've got to purify it, you've got to what we call micronize it, and then you've got to turn the flakes of graphite into spheres effectively. Um, and then you've got to coat those materials to, to use in, in anode. And um, even though the Chinese have been doing this for a while, there aren't any major projects on this in the Western world. There are a lot in development. I think there are 10 or 12 in development. Um, but, but we basically, all of those 10 or 12, to come into production by 2025, if we're not going to have a big hole, and that's not going to happen. So, you know, we really need a lot of investment in the 
what we call the midstream in the in the graphite side of things because you know this battery demand is rising so rapidly but anode material production can't ride with it because synthetic graphite you know you won't be able to grow at 30 to 40 percent a year um maybe it manages five or ten percent a year and then the flake then has to make up for that um and we're just not you know opening enough capacity fast enough so it's a, it's a huge um a huge area where there's a lot of investment going in um but it is it's difficult to get these things like on the mining side it's difficult to get these things into production um and not you know it's not a problem getting them into production to some extent but pushing the required required uh, recovery levels at the required purity on a consistent basis that's the issue um and you know the industry has struggled with that historically um so yeah it's um for me graphite is probably where lithium was uh, two or three years ago and i think we're just getting to the point now where you know graphite prices could could tip up quite rapidly um and it's a real issue because um you know you, you think about what materials you need in a battery um nickel cobalt manganese phosphate lithium graphite every battery uses lithium graphite you know they may use uh, nickel cobalt manganese they may use nickel cobalt aluminium as a cathode they might use iron phosphate lithium iron phosphate as a cathode every single battery uses lithium and graphite so it's a it's a big issue Oh, those are great points. Um, so I think you know the the bullish side of of the the battery narrative or the net zero narrative. I think is quite clear, and I think almost regardless of where the world is headed, you know, this is the demand is going to be on the positive side. But I'd like to play devil's advocate and and ask you about you know the 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 bearish side of of things, or maybe the not as rosy bullish side, because I think one of the big things we talked about earlier is cost and in a higher inflationary environment. I really wonder where the consumer is going to have the money to to buy these EVs and buy these different things uh, moving forward. And then you have in the UK, for instance, you've got the you know the fifteen minute city. Uh, a concept and I don't I think that's in Oxford uh, in the UK um and you seemingly have like these two things where you know the government is pushing towards uh the use of of cleaner technologies but they're also saying hey look um you should be not using your car as much so I wonder you know can you talk about the the other side of things on where demand might be constrained because of these other things I mean, you touch on a really important point for me, um, insofar as I think the biggest risk to the energy transition now, whether it's the battery side or whether it's the energy transition as a whole, is this issue of underinvestment in raw materials. Um, because as you say, if lithium prices go too high, uh, you know, nickel prices haven't really moved that much in the cycle, cobalt, manganese, graphite prices, for instance, if they go too high, how are we ever going to get price parity on electric vehicles? And, you know, one of the things that's been, a, uh, that's kind of got our pass out of the fire in the EV industry over the last sort of two to three years is even though raw material prices have gone up, the industry has done very well in terms of rolling out new technological innovations and economies of scale, which have limited the extent to which battery cell costs have gone up on a dollars per kilowatt hour basis. But you can't keep doing that forever. And, you know, if raw material prices continue to go up over the next few years, then it's really going to be an issue. And I think the only way that you can get around that 
is by using smaller batteries. Um, so for me, you know, one of the things that I expect to happen as a trend is I think that EV makers going forward will use slightly smaller batteries and potentially will uh, rely much more on fast charging. So, so just to step back a little bit on charging at the moment, I think people see the sort of, I don't know how it is in, uh, in North America, but in the UK, we get different types of charging, recharging infrastructure. You get the stuff that sits at the, at the gas station. Uh, we have stuff in lampposts in, in London. Uh, and then you have other stuff that sort of sits at the side of the road. Now, those recharging points are actually only where probably 20% of EVs in the UK get recharged. Most EVs get recharged at people's homes overnight. Um, and, you know, that's that's not a problem. But certainly, you know, if we want to go forward, fast charging becomes important. And if, you know, if people can't recharge at their homes overnight, and for instance, they don't live in a house, they live in an apartment in a city centre, um, then there's a lot more pressure. And it's very important then that we can, you know, get a car into an EV charging station, get it out again in 20 minutes. And that, that's when fast charging becomes very important. So I think fast charging uh, technology is potentially a beneficiary of higher prices because I think higher raw material prices will eventually result in smaller battery sizes. And smaller battery sizes means that you're going to have to recharge more often, and it might be when you're away from the house. So I think that's that's the sort of key area. But I would suggest that that underinvestment in raw material is now the biggest risk to an energy transition, whether that's batteries or whether it's copper for high voltage cabling or aluminium or anything like that. Um, there's a huge, huge issue out there. And, um, you know, we're building in not only a structural shortage, but a time shortage as well, because, you know, as the bulk of your listeners probably know, it takes upwards up to about 10 or 12 years to build a new mine from discovery to production. It only takes what two to three years to build a, a, a new manufacturing facility, a cell manufacturing facility. So, but we're building in this huge time lag as well as the structural shortage, and I, I think that that's something that's not being understood by a lot of politicians, by a lot of um, people in industry. It started to be understood by a number of OEMs. So we've had like comments out from the CEO of Stellantis, from the CEO of Ford. Um, from LG Chem to cell manufacturer in the last sort of six months or so. So that's great, but you still got to put your money where your mouth is. Last year, we saw four deals, count it, one, two, three, four deals, where an OEM actually put capital into a uh, mine developer. Or, um, you know, we, we need to be seeing loads of these deals. I mean, last year, record lithium prices Fundraising in the lithium space actually went down 20% year on year. You know, it needs to be going up 20, 30, 40% year on year for the next five years. And you're just not seeing that sort of investment coming through. Right, right. Well, on my soapbox there. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, but you you bring up a really good point. Like I live, I live just outside Toronto, uh, the province of Ontario. Um, well, each province in Canada has kind of put a different spin on it. But you know, they're they're projecting no ICE vehicles sales after 2030 or 2035. And I hear yeah. something like that, and it's like, whoa, like how can yeah. you jump to that sort of conclusion, yeah. no matter how I mean, rosy? It's a lovely idea, and we wish it could happen, but I'm going to say now it won't happen. Right. It can't happen um, because there's not enough investment in raw materials. And, you know, the EU has these um, controls as well. A number of U.S. states have announced these targets too. 
Um, so it's just non-viable in its current form because there's just not enough investment in, in raw materials. Okay. So we've talked about, you know, the, the battery side, you know, from, you know, supply and demand sort of, of point of view, but then I want to take it from the point of view of an investor. So in 2023, can you give us what you would say are the top two metals that investors need to be looking at in the battery space? So I, I'm going to say graphite and I'm going to stick with lithium. Um, there are, you know, a couple of sort of minor minor materials. We definitely say high purity manganese is a really interesting material. But let's go with graphite and lithium um, as my two top picks. Yeah, and, and lithium prices are going down at the moment, and people are probably staring at the screen going, "What is he smoking? He has no idea what he's talking about." Hopefully, we'll talk about why I'm positive on lithium later. Yeah, well, and and also it's the it's uh, I think you could probably answer this question with, um, so you you've got the metals, but then what type of company are you looking at? Like, are you looking at a senior miner? Are you looking at a junior developer? Um, are you looking at exploration? You know, where where do you think that sweet spot is? Because not all those companies are as uh, exposed to price pressure. Yeah, well, I think um, a lot of easy money has been made in, in this sector already, um, particularly on the lithium side between what the third quarter of 2020 and uh, back end of last year. Uh, you know, a lot of stocks are up multi-barriers nine or 10 times because of the increase in prices. Um, I'm on record in BMR as saying last year, I prefer the explorers to the rest of the space. Now, this is in lithium specifically, not so much in graphite, but in lithium, I prefer the explorers. And the reason is because they are generating value at the drillers. And my gut feeling is that equity markets are going to maintain their, how should we put it nicely, volatility, certainly over the next three to six months. And in volatile equity markets, you do often find, particularly you know at this stage of the cycle, um, that mining stocks will underperform uh, because they're very high beta and very volatile. Um, in the lithium space, I'm excited about explorers because there's a number of really exciting exploration areas out there where um, you know stocks are adding value, adding resources basically. And I think in a in a down market or a weak market, you generally find the explorers outperform because they're able to add new uh, new value for investors. And also on top of that, because they're drilling all the time, they're generating news flow. Hopefully positive news flow. <laughs> you know, hopefully we made some made some intercepts rather than oh, we couldn't find anything. But uh, you know, hopefully positive news flow. But uh, yeah, I generally I mean we I run um, in BMR, I run baskets. So I I I um, average out the performance of various sort of equities in each area. And our our um our lithium explorer basket was the only basket that was in positive territory last year. Um and I think that says everything you need to know. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Hey, Matt, I've really enjoyed the conversation. I think we've covered a lot of those high points, but we're definitely going to need to talk again because there's so many other places we can go with this. Uh, yeah. But I think we're going to leave it at there for today. Matt, right. how can people follow your work? Uh, yep. So check out my website, batterymaterialsreview.com. Um, there is it is a subscription product, but there's a fair amount of free stuff on there as well. Uh, check out our, our yearbook, totally free. Tells you what happened in 2022. Some thoughts for 2023 as well. So yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Sounds good. Sounds good. So we'll talk again. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much.
Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.